Hey, good evening, friends and family. My name is Matt Mulberg, and I'm so thankful, so grateful, so excited that you are choosing to spend this portion of your Sunday night with us. I know that sounds gimmicky and like something I am paid to say, and, and to a certain extent, that's true, but like honestly, what we got going is not a given. Like, I, I am actually feeling very grateful to be in a community that is choosing to still be community even when we can't be together. So thank you for saying yes to our 10,000 different invitations that we send you all the time. And thank you for persisting with us. Thank you for being patient with us as we try to make our way through this hot mess of a moment. One of the ways that we are choosing to link arms in this season where we have to stay apart is by going through Steve Weens' new book, Shining Like the Sun, and taking on the seven practices inside that are aimed to keep us grounded, help us root our stories, give us these practices that are pragmatic, accessible, and honestly, for me, medicinal. I mean, they're meeting me where I am and providing for me this bridge into where I'm trying to go, and I'm grateful for that. Last week, we talked about the first practice, which was the practice of attentiveness. Now, that is about slowing your pace and looking around and noticing all of the things that are around you. This week, we are talking about the practice of ordinariness, which is about slowing down and turning around and paying attention to the you that is coming up within you. That's what I want to talk about tonight. But first, I need to tell you about my boy. That's okay, right? My baby boy, Wyatt Moore Mulberg, turned seven years old this past Thursday, and you best believe that we celebrated from dawn to dusk. Or is it is it dusk to dawn or dawn to dusk? We celebrated all day long. We had people come over with treats. We had families come over with gifts. We just had this ongoing celebration, all with it. Nobody broke the six feet you know they didn't breach that it was not a dangerous gathering but there was frequent visitors who did drive-bys with joy and love and and it was awesome in between the parties in between the the drive-bys i was at one point in the afternoon standing in the backyard doing my thing while wyatt was in the other part of the backyard doing his thing and i looked from my side over to his and i just started staring at him and thinking about all of the amazing gifts that his life has brought into mind how grateful I am for the gift of this young boy. And I started having all this nostalgic uh, feelings coming over me and all these old stories. And I have to tell you one of them. I know I've already told you this story probably way too many times, but it, it, it won't kill you to hear it one more time. So I'm going to say it one more time. Indulge me, please. There was a moment where Wyatt was around four-ish years old, something around that age, where him and I went up one afternoon to Walmart to pick up a hammock. Or was it a bonfire pit? One of the two. We went there for some purpose. That's not the point of the story. We were standing, though, in this Walmart, and we were in this one particular aisle that was completely debris-free. There were no other people there, and so naturally Wyatt looked at the clear track and thought, this is as good of a time as any to find out for myself how fast these feet can really run. And then he lowered his shoulders and he started to sprint and he started to go fast. And it was, he, was, he was committed to, or so it seemed, to break the sound barrier. Like this was his opportunity to really strut his stuff. And I'm watching him and I'm like, nah, you got a clear track, why not? Problem is, is that while he is going down full speed ahead this particular aisle, there is an elderly lady who is about to turn down it. And when I say elderly lady, I'm not talking about somebody who is late 60s, nor am I even talking about somebody who's late 70s. I'm talking about someone who 
give or take a little maybe, is around the 88, 89. I'm talking about someone who's at the age of that, if they have the body of a four-year-old coming full speed at them and that body crashes into their body, they might not get back up. Like this could be a fatal crash. I noticed that she is turning down our aisle at the same time when Wyatt is about to reach the end of the aisle. And there's nothing I can do at that point but brace for impact. And so I braced from a distance, waiting for the damage, and then it happens. The two of them collide, and this lady gets like, <laughs> like her body absorbs the hit and she stumbles a little bit and then she reaches and she grabs onto the shopping cart for dear life and after she regains stability and after Wyatt stands back up she she is like I can't I can't believe I'm still alive so there's that initial moment of gratitude which now that I think about it didn't last very long because she immediately started looking at me and then she shifted her eyes towards Wyatt and then she looked back at me and I could tell that she was eagerly anticipating an apology one that I was ready to give to her I mean I was um I'm a pastor you know I'm like I'm a professional <laughs> this is what we do and I was about to give her an apology like she has never been given before I was about to even squeeze out a tear or two just to really seal the deal on sincerity but as I'm stepping forward to provide this gift for her uh Wyatt starts talking and he looks at the lady that he almost killed and he says you really need to watch where you're going Ma'am, I know that it's a big store. I know that maybe you got the impression that you can kind of do whatever you want, that it's all about you, but we are here. There are other people here and there are some rules of respect that we need you to abide by. You really need to watch where you're going. And she looks at me and she looks at him, traumatized. And she says, you really need the Lord. And then slowly she limped away. There's this thing about kids where when you bring them outside of the house, it's not like they cease from being kids. They, they have no problem going into the general public with all of their kidness still in them. They will make things uncomfortable. They will make things weird. They will make people feel weird. That's just kind of what kids do. And I don't know exactly why I was thinking about that story on this past Thursday morning, but I was. I was thinking about Wyatt and how as a kid he has a tendency to make it weird sometimes. And then I thought about as he grows older, how much I'm going to miss that. How much I'm gonna miss his, his unapologetic, filter-free living. Because I know if human history has anything to teach us, I know that he won't always keep it. I know that this sense of, of aliveness that lives with no lack, that only lasts for so long, but that sense of enough tends to expire with age. I'm going to miss Wyatt being that free little kid. And I know that because I miss when I used to be that free little kid. I miss being able to live without care of how people thought of me. I miss not having anxiety around whether somebody liked my last sermon or my last status or, or I miss like, I just miss like I am who I am and I'm not going to say sorry for it. I don't need your approval. I don't need your affirmation. I'm loved by God and that's enough for me. I miss when that was enough for me. But it, it's honestly not, doesn't always feel enough for me. And so I say I'm going to miss that in why because I miss that in me and I know that at some point it'll be gone.
At some point, Wyatt will step out, and in doing so, he'll get stepped on. And at some point, he's going to ask somebody for a dance, and that somebody's going to turn around and say, no, thank you. At some point, he is going to go out for a team, and the coach won't call his name. At some point, he is going to boldly put himself out there, only to realize that maybe it's just better to safely keep yourself away. Maybe it's just better to uh, be funny so that you don't have to be vulnerable. Maybe it's better to get angry so that you never have to be seen as sad. Maybe it's better to learn the codes of society so that you can learn how to perform your life instead of actually participating in your life. I don't know when that point is going to come for Wyatt, but I do know that at some point on some day, there will be snakes that sneak up on my son and they will say things that aren't true and he will listen as if they were. That tends to be the human dilemma right there. Which is actually why I think that the way that the early Jewish writers wrote about the creation story is so brilliant. I think that the story in Genesis is so brilliant, not because it actually happened, but because it continues to happen all of the time. This It's the same pattern over and over again. I mean, just consider it for a second. When the first writers got together, they tried to answer the question, what makes a human truly human? You know, like, what, what is our human? What, give me a framework to make sense of this thing. They started talking about how human beings are these creatures that are of the earth. We are Adama. We come from the ground. We are very breakable, and yet there is something within us that will not go broke. We are very fragile, and yet there is something within us that is fierce. We may grow tired, but we won't stop growing. The writer said that the first word about us is not that we are broken, but that we are blessed. Not that we are bad, but that there is something in us that is good. Not that we are cursed, but that we are created in the image of God. And that means everything. When the writers got together and talked about, so if how do we define what a whole and healthy and rooted in and sound person actually looks like? How would you define wholeness? They provide an answer in Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Pay attention to those words. The first definition of wholeness that we receive in any place in the Bible is one where they are naked and they have no shame, which is very different than being naked and having no sin. Their sense of completion isn't hinging upon the absence of sin, it's hinging upon the absence of shame. It is painting a picture of a reality where all of you is seen and none of you is sorry. When the writers set out to talk about what wholeness actually looks like, they talked about a four-year-old Wyatt sprinting down the aisles of Walmart. But of course, that, that only lasts for about 27 minutes. Because the next phase in the story is that there is a snake that sneaks up on the couple and starts to speak them out of who they actually are and trick them into believing that they need to be something else. And isn't it interesting, as a side note a little bit, but that of all the creatures in God's kingdom, the, the creature that is cast as the character for the villain is a serpent. I mean, think about that. A serpent, like, really, I, I, if you and I were thinking about snakes, at least for me, like, I have every reason to be scared of snakes. I hate snakes. I want nothing to do with snakes. But for the first human beings to encounter a snake was to encounter a, a stick that moved in the grass that had a smile on top. Like, how less harmful, how less, like, dangerous could one animal possibly look? It would look completely harmless. 
just like many of the things that we come to regret later in life at first look completely harmless. But then when we gave them our ears and they got into our head and found a way down to our heart, we realized, holy, that thing was packing a punch. The snake creeps up on Eve on one afternoon in the garden and says, hey, Eve, could you just, you know, clarify something for me? Did, did God really say to you whenever you two were having some back and forth that you weren't allowed to have any fruit from any of the trees and Eve turns and listens to the snake and then Eve turns and speaks to the snake and Eve says to him we actually can eat from the trees in the garden but to be fair God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die the serpent hears Eve saying this and kind of just shakes his head and goes are you for real you're not going to die from that. I don't know who told you what, but you will certainly not die. Translation, God's messing with you. If you're being duped by the divine, you are looking like an idiot and God is laughing behind your back. And as Eve is listening to what the serpent has to say, this person who was fully complete and fully enough suddenly develops a crack suddenly goes from this abundance of life to living in this sense of lack. When the serpent comes Eve's way, the serpent doesn't come at her talking about a, a particular tree. The serpent comes at her talking about a truth. The serpent says that God, who you think is a lover, as it turns out, is actually a liar. And that's a huge problem because if God is a liar, then God is not a lover. And if God is not a lover, then I am not the loved. And if I am not the loved, then I am full of lack and I no longer know who I am. And so Eve stumbles around that day heartbroken and embarrassed and full of shame because she listened to a snake that started to speak and she was convinced that her lover was actually a liar. And for the first time in human history, God is seen in this dark and distorted light. And everything for Eve started to change that day because some snake started to speak. And I wonder when the snakes first started to speak to you. When was the first time that you recognized that who you were as you were wasn't going to cut it? Like when was the first time you realized that you couldn't just show up at class in sweatpants? that you had to actually put some product in your hair? When was the first time that you realized it was actually kind of dangerous to answer a teacher's question? When was the first time that you realized honesty is not always the best policy? Who were the snakes that told you that you couldn't cut it? And when they said that about you, what did that say to you about God? See, I, I, I don't, um, you know, when I think about Wyatt or any of my kids, not one of them has any doubt in their minds whether, whether or not God actually loves them, but, but I do. Like, I don't doubt the existence of God in my life, but I do tend to doubt the existence of me in God's life. I, I don't doubt that there is a higher power. I just have questions around how that higher power actually looks and sees me, just like Eve has questions about how she is seen now by God. The first attack on Eve that day was not how lovely the fruit is. The first attack was how unlovely you are. 
I can't believe that you thought you were enough. Has nobody told you how far short you have fallen, how inadequate you are, how you don't have what it takes at all? In the moment that Eve feels a lack, she realizes that she needs to look for a fix. And that's again where the serpent comes around to and says, I got just what you need. The serpent says to her, for God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Part of me wonders if when Eve heard those words, you will be like God, she kind of just did the calculation in her head and realized, if I take from this tree and I end up like God, perhaps that'll mean that I will be liked again by God. If I, if I marry that guy, if I take this job, if I memorize the Bible, if I go to church, if I stop drinking, if I stop cursing, if I start drinking, if maybe then I'll be acceptable. Maybe then God would endorse my life. But until then, I, I can't turn around and go back to where I was, at least not how I presently am. And so I'll reach for something out there because I do not believe that I've already received something good in here. Eve reaches for the serpent's fix to fix all the things that she cannot even face. Eve just figures that if I do this, I can recover what's lost and I can finally go home again because I finally will be enough. But the problem was never that Eve wasn't enough. The problem was that Eve believed that she wasn't enough. And the moment that she allowed that belief to linger in her body, it started to build momentum and suddenly it spiraled out of control. This is why, and I know that I've said this 10,000 times now, but let me say it once more for somebody in the back. The most important part of your life is not how God sees you, nor is it even how you see God. The most important part of your life is how you see the way that God sees you. When you see God, how do you see God seeing you? Do you think that God is there looking at you through the eyes of a lover or do you think God is there tricking you because God is a liar? How are you beheld in the eyes of God when you behold God? Tragically then and next in the story is, is what tends to happen in all of our stories is that we will take some of this thing that we thought that we needed. It will only bring shame and then we will pass it around. Sin, shame, whatever you want to call it, it goes viral. It's contagious. Shamed people shame people. Hurt people hurt people. And But it is worth noting that they do not die. The serpent wasn't playing. They are still... St not only do they not die, actually, if you read the text, they go on to live for like another 800, 900 years. When they take a bite from the fruit that they weren't supposed to take a bite from, they do not die, but something in them does. Text reads and says... When they took this bite, the eyes of both of them were opened. And catch this now. They realized that they were naked. Biologically, they kept on going, but they did die that day. Because before, they were two people who were naked and unashamed and absolutely complete. And now they were naked and full of shame and fully, completely terrified. They experience some form of death in this moment. The lights go off and the clothes come on and the covers get pulled all over our heads and they realize that they are no longer safe to be fully seen and so they have to cover up and hide all that they are. And all of this is revealed in this ancient story from thousands of years ago when a talking snake said to them what the talking snake says to us still, you are not loved by God, but if you do this, if you go there, if you act like that, then you might be. And we believe him.
And then we end up like Adam and Eve and we are reaching for fig leaves to wear as clothes, which is actually just brilliant writing because fig leaves are these, it's this botanical material that will crumble when the first wind comes, just like all of our coverings crumble when the first winds come. And instead of actually allowing ourselves to be naked and unashamed, we just grab more leaves. But that's not the way forward. You cannot get back to wholeness. You cannot get back to being naked by putting on more clothes. At some point, you have to go through the Good Friday cross and crucify that snake that's within all of us, the words that got to us, so that we can make it to the freedom of Easter Sunday. And the good news of the gospel is that after Adam and Eve have covered themselves up with leaves, and after Adam and Eve have climbed to the highest tops of the trees just to hide, God still comes looking for them. The story says that God moves in the morning dew. God comes to the garden and lifts God's voice and says, Guys, where, where are you? God's asking that question not because God doesn't know where they are, but he's worried that perhaps they don't. Like, do you know where you are? Are, are you living in a life of abundance or are you living in the myth of lack? Are you living as somebody who is constantly reaching to validate your experience of life? Are you living as somebody who has received the gift of God? It's so now you're alive. God shouts out, where are you? Adam shouts back, says, uh, listen, God, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so that's why I'm at the top of this tree hiding right now. But God's next question is my favorite of all of the God questions that we have in the scripture. And, and God sees Adam and he hears Adam's reasons for hiding and then with tears streaming down God's face and anger boiling up in God's chest God defends our lives by saying who told you who told you that you were naked who did this to you Who made you believe that you weren't enough? That you didn't belong? Who? What snake got in your head? Who told you that you weren't cutting it as a parent? Who told you that you didn't have what it takes? Who told you that you weren't a good friend? Who told you that you weren't smart? That you weren't beautiful? What snake spoke? What snake did you listen to? Who told you that you were naked? And the subtext of that is because I never would. I would never say that to you. I would never look at you in any other way but the recognizing that you are enough and that you are loved as you are. End of story. Who told you that you were naked? Because it wasn't me. The good news of the gospel is that God is still there in the garden asking where are you? And waiting for us to say, we're right here. I have a friend who says that Father God is a lot like Forrest Gump. He says that God loves us just like Forrest loved Jenny. No matter how many guys Jenny brought into her bed or how many drugs Jenny brought into her body, no matter how far she would run or how sick she would get, Forrest would always run after Jenny. He longed for her, he loved her, and he never stopped chasing her. In fact, the whole story is about Forrest chasing Jenny, and, and I would argue that the same could be said about your story. 
and my story. Our whole story is about God chasing us, walking the ground of the garden, waiting for us to come down from the top of the trees and back into the truth that we are loved and we know no lack. The practice of ordinariness is coming out of hiding and back into who you have always been. We'll see you next week.